This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In our Dean's Distinguished Speaker Series, tonight we're going to have a panel to discuss marketing and its relationship with big data. So big data and data analytics, you hear a lot about now. These represent some of the fastest growing professional skill sets in, in the nation and in Northern California's knowledge economy in particular. Um, and this plays an important role in our, in our business world and society. And as this unfolds and becomes bigger, teams and organizations around the world are racing to try to find the best methods to understand the data, incorporate it into their processes uh, and discover really the most effective ways to impact their audiences and their businesses. Those in supply chain use this information to seek out valuable adjustments that will boost efficiency. Product and marketing teams are using these principles to uncover feedback regarding product iterations, customer satisfaction, ways to reach new customers, and how to continue satisfying existing base and building brand loyalty. This is something we're doing at the GSM as we try to uh, uh, encourage great students to join us every year. The University of California Davis and our Graduate School of Management is, is leading in data analytics and marketing and technology management. We are currently uh, anxiously awaiting approval from uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, bodies of the university system uh, for our new master's degree in business analytics, which is very close. It's in the final stage and we hope to launch in the fall of 2017. So with all this as a backdrop, I want to introduce um, our uh, panelists and moderator. So I'll introduce them one by one and invite them to come up and take the, the hot seats here. Um, so first of all, uh, with more than 18 years of experience in public relations, brand communication, and public affairs, Abby Lunardini has now helped lead Virgin America's communications efforts since the launch of the brand in the US in 2007. Prior to her assuming the role of VP of Brand Marketing and Communications, Abby served as Managing Director at Mercury Public Affairs, where she led the agency's integrated digital media practice. Prior also to her time at Virgin America, Abby held a number of senior communications positions, including service as the Special Assistant for Executive Communications to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and has worked in marketing at both Warner Records and Sony Music in London. Abby earned her Master's of Science degree from the London School of Economics and her BA from UC Davis. In 2012, Abby was named as one of the top 40 PR professionals under 40 by PR Week. So it's my pleasure to welcome Abby to the panel tonight. Next in our line, in our uh, lineup is Aaron Carpenter, who is currently the chief customer officer and co-founder of Hubnami, startup company helping brands maximize their social media impact through data analysis. Aaron joined Hubnami after 17 years experience in digital marketing, e-commerce, site design, and sales, most recently as vice president of global marketing at the North Face. Under his marketing leadership, the North Face was the first brand in VF Corporation portfolio to break the $2 billion mark in revenue. Before joining the North Face, Aaron spent 10 years at Levi Strauss and Company in marketing, e-commerce, and licensing positions. Aaron is also a multiple Aggie degree holder. He graduated with an MBA from the GSM in 1998 and has a BA in Russian and International Relations at UC Davis. Welcome to Aaron. 
Next, uh, to mix things up, we've got someone direct from Gallagher Hall, Associate Professor Ashwin Aravindakshan's research interest center on learning how brands can better allocate their advertising resources across different regions and multiple media over time. In addition to studying these dynamic advertising models, his research also investigates the dynamics of customer behavior and loyalty to help managers devise better communication and targeting policies as they optimize their marketing mix. His research has been published in many journals, including Marketing Science, Operations Research, Management Science, Journal of Marketing Research, and many others. He teaches courses to our students in customer relationship management and new product development. Ashwin <coughs> received his PhD in business administration from the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland and a BTech in aerospace engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology. Welcome, Ashwin. All right, so finally, it's my pleasure. Um, I am uh, fortunate to have someone here who will moderate this dynamic panel. They're going to be, um, I'm sure, a handful, but we have someone up to the task. Tonight's moderator, I'm pleased to um, introduce Lisa Malhart, who is Executive Vice President at SY Partners. This is a brand consultancy firm that advises CEOs and executives on corporate vision and strategy, culture building, and customer experiences. Lisa joined SY Partners in 1994 as a writer and over the years has assumed greater and greater leadership responsibility, including leading the San Francisco consulting practice until transitioning to her current role in 2013. Throughout her career, Lisa has worked with executives at Apple, Disney, Gap, Herman Miller, Hewlett Packard, IBM, Old Navy, Starbucks, and Sundance, among others. Lisa also has spent some time at UC Davis. She has an MA from UC Davis in fiction writing and a BA in English and poetry from Stanford. Now I, it's my pleasure to turn the night's events over to Lisa and welcome Lisa to the stage. Nice to see everyone. So we thought we'd um, ask questions along kind of two dimensions tonight. One on how this new reality of data analytics, big data, is affecting the practice of communications and marketing. And then later on, we'll go into how it's affected the leadership of the, the experience of being a leader for communications and marketing um, roles in this world. So I thought first, um, since the theme tonight is around storytelling, why don't we start with a couple stories? And I asked that each of our distinguished panelists tell us a story, um, Abby and Aaron in particular, since they're coming from, from industry, about um, one story of something great and successful that you were able to do as a marketer. I'll have Aaron go back a little bit in his career. Um, thanks to data analytics. Thanks for being, to being able to tap a lot of data. And then one story about something that maybe just didn't go so well. So we can all get a sense of what the landscape's like and a little bit of an insight into what it's like to do that job. Abby, are you up for starting for us? Sure. Okay, great. Yeah, and I'll, I'll start um, with the the negative <laughs> story. Um, we actually at Virgin had a um, reservation system cut over back in 2011, which for an airline is a huge, it's likened to doing sort of a simultaneous heart and brain transplant. It's a live cut over of your reservation system. So all of your data is going to the central global um, reservations platform. And um, uh, United just went through a very high profile one and it was a bit of a disaster for them because it is a knife edge. So there tends to be a lot of customer service disruptions and in airlines a 24 seven business. 
Um, so um, when we went through that process in 2011, um, it uh, essentially, um, we had a lot of outages on the website. People couldn't change flights. They couldn't necessarily find like their Elevate frequent flyer miles. They couldn't redeem. Um, and you know, we had thousands of calls in our contact center. Social media channels were overwhelmed and were pretty well known. We're the first airline to have fleet-wide Wi-Fi for having a pretty robust social uh, media presence. And um, in the midst of that, I think one of the, the key learnings that we had is that um, there was so much customer feedback coming at us and we were very focused as a customer service company on sort of responding to each tweet and each um, customer um, you know, guest um, impact uh, that we had um, that we kind of um, sort of lost sight of our internal data reporting. So we were sort of only as good as what we knew was going on inside. So an example, um, on our Twitter feed was that we had a Wall Street Journal reporter sort of reaching out to our own guests saying, is the service restored while we're at the same time making a statement based on our internal data that it was and it wasn't, <laughs> which is the worst thing you could do. So I think um, just kind of learning in terms of um, you know, you're sort of only as good as, as what your sort of internal data is, but you can also learn so much from your customers and that sort of experience. So it's quite painful. But <laughs> we lived through it. Yes, you're still here. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Aaron, how about you? Can I start with the positive one? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, I think the the time that I, I experienced the power of big data, or that actually, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a wasn't a, a super data guy. I mean, I was on the brand side, Levi's, North Face, um, was always sort of more on the emotional side of the brand building, but. Um, about, I guess about four years ago at the North Face, uh, we had this fund that was an innovation fund. So Vanity Fair is the, the holding company of many different brands, so they own the North Face. They'd put aside some money and they'd say, if you can come with a proposal, uh, we'll fund some new ideas. So our CTO at the North Face came to me and said, hey, you're building a CRM system. You've got a couple million people in there. Um, I'm really interested in this big data idea and I wanna test it. And so she said, we've got a couple hundred thousand dollars Let's pull out um, a subset. We had about two million people. Pull out a subset and see what happens if we could try and use big data to predict what's what they're going to buy next or what they'd want to hear from us next. And um, so we we took at the North Face the number one. Anybody guess what the number one factor at the North Face is it, for sales? Yeah, weather. Weather is like as soon as people start talking about weather. That is when people start buying jackets. So we took weather data, uh, and then we took our point of sale data from the stores. Um, so we had quite a bit of credit card data, bought some other credit card data, and then we took social media data and started to try and triangulate what, what would our most loyal customers want to do next. And um, I was just completely blown away. I was sort of skeptical going in, but it, it basically, we were able to say, serve up messages to people saying, if you bought a jacket for a girl last year, we think you might want to buy some boots for that girl this year. And the, the conversion rate went up like 120% based on that. And it was the first time I, was, I just was like, this is, this is really insane that you can, by just using that context, really have such an impact. And so that, that whole business, that CRM and that database turned into uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars in incremental business over a couple of years. And so that was, that was a success story. You know, I'll save my, my 
my uh, failure until okay. later. <laughs> clearly turned you into a believer because you've changed yes. your career to go squarely yes. after that, that whole space. So Ashwin, let me ask you a question. Um, when you think on behalf of the students who you're bringing along and teaching, and you think of the research you're doing, and this brave new world that we're all entering into where data is becoming so important, um, and you think on behalf of those students who are going to go out into the world and go be leaders, what, what keeps you up at night? What worries you or makes you, what, what obsesses you when you think about big data, the impact it's having on industry, and, and also the impact for those people as leaders, what they're going to have to wrestle with? Hmm. So uh, in, in my course, one of, so I teach customer relationship management. In that course, uh, we go through the analytics of customers and, uh, and so on. But uh, one of the main things that I try to impart is the ability to ask the right question. Um, because what's happening today is you know, all these analytical tools are being created and people are using it. But the flip side is marketing automation is, is also emerging. Right? And so a lot of these marketing functions are going to become automated. Right? And so if you do, you do not develop the ability to ask the right questions or to understand uh, what's next right, for your brand, then you're more at risk than if you can be creative with the analytics that, that, you, that you produce. Right? So I, I think, uh, so at least that's what I try to do in, in, in the course, hopefully. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me, I was heartened to hear how many humanities majors are among us here. And uh, I think that's what we learn in our liberal arts degrees, right? How to ask good questions, how to, how to think properly. So I, I would take from that that if we can't learn to think and ask the right questions, then all of this is a tool that's useless for us or that could be wielded with really, really disastrous results. So. Um, uh, Aaron, th given the role that you're in now with Hubnami, tell me a little bit about what keeps you up at night, maybe on behalf of your clients, when you think about big data? Well, I, I, I'd say there's probably two things. So, uh, so at Hubnami, we, we essentially help social media managers and agencies aggregate all the social media stats across the different platforms. And um, as you guys know, there's new platforms popping up every quarter, basically. So very fast-moving space. Um, I think the biggest one is when you see uh, negative things start to spread for brands. Um, and I, when, when I was the head of marketing at North Face, we had things around uh, labor issues with uh, Bangladesh and where things were produced. And um, it, it's immediate. So it, it can go from you walk in the morning, everything's fine, to by 5 o'clock, everything's on fire. And so in social media, that's always... Um, one of the big things that keeps you up at night is just how, how fast that can move and how global it is, you know, and it's, it's just really pretty amazing. And I think the other one is, um, is uh, privacy. I mean, just in this, this age of data, large amounts of data, cybersecurity we heard about earlier tonight, I mean, it's just, it's real, and, it's, and those breaches are happening, and if you're a brand and you're using social media data, and, which is very personal for people. It's almost like, you know, when you're on Facebook, it's almost like you're talking on the phone to your friends, and you don't, you don't want to have that interrupted by brands in a bad way. So, so that's the second one, is just privacy. And, and if, you, if you mismanage that trust between a brand and, a, and an individual, you could really run into trouble. Yeah. Yep. I can imagine, Abby, based on what you just said, that something about trust and um, that hard-fought relationship that great brands like these, all these brands we're hearing about, North Face, Virgin, I mean, think of, think of how much we all 
sit up a little straighter when we hear about those brands. They're, they're just revered, and that's a really precious, precious asset. And the thought that you might um, inadvertently misuse that because you're reacting to data, I can imagine, would be really um, very frightening. But are there other things around that? Is, is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm curious where you, from where you sit, what's the thing that worries you? Um, yeah, I think that I think that's one of them. I think um, you know, uh, for us, um, we're a pretty small airline and a really big consolidated industry mm -hmm. now. So I think our big fear is really with big de uh, de data in particular is like, can we not only keep up with the big guys, but can we innovate because it is labor intensive and um, requires a lot of investment. So I think that's that's one of the things that we. Um, uh, are struggling with. Yeah. How is it disrupting your industry overall? Like, what do you think the headline is there for the way it, that big data is disrupting? Uh, I think the, the biggest thing is how people book travel. And I think, um, you know, obviously with the rise of like the third party sites like Expedia and Orbitz, they kind of were the first wave, but now you have Google Flight Search and mm -hmm. um, people are booking travel in a very different way. Um, and that was, um, you know, one of the, um, we just launched a new website uh, for virginamerica.com in 2014. And probably because we all had PTSD from the reservations <laughs> cut over, um, we actually, um, it was a great experience because we really um, did quite a bit of customer research, um, uh, but not just customer research um, in terms of quantitative, but really some qualitative stuff. We did like a closed beta with, um, Google, which is our number one corporate um, travel client, to just test out the site um, and really get that qualitative feedback because in our industry, we sort of saw just like our cabin experience is so different. We saw an opportunity when people book travel um, to actually make the experience pleasant and not just utilitarian and you want to get through this. And I think um, with our website redesign, um, we really accomplished that. And we had that opportunity really because we got that feedback from customers and from top corporate um, customers, which gave us kind of the confidence to, to do that. Because when we launched the site, um, you know, a lot of folks internally uh, and on the e-commerce side, we're like, what is this? There's no calendar search. And you know, it doesn't look like a standard um, website. Um, but our guests really love it. It went on to win a Webby Award and you know, got written up by Fast Company and Wired for kind of like the best UX experience in, in travel. Um, so um, I guess it's for us as a smaller player, um, that qualitative side of the feedback is super important because it like opens up what are the opportunities that the big guys aren't necessarily seeing that we can take advantage of. Definitely. We, we all met um, last week for the first time and we were talking a little bit about um, the art and science of using data in marketing. And, um, and Aaron, you, you were talking a little bit about um, merchants and how valuable and powerful merchants are in the apparel industry in particular and the life, in lifestyle brands. Um, tell us a little bit about where, what you're seeing about the merchant data, the artist, the science, and how those things are coming together or clashing or not when it comes to decision making. I think Abby's example was a good tee up of Yeah, it's, um, I, I, th I believe in any business there's the art and the science to it and, and I, um, I don't think that data will take over, especially in, in industries that are very art driven. So, um, and apparel is, tends to be more artistic and creative driven. And, and I've seen it, so you guys know Mickey Drexler from The Gap, right? So there's, there's certain people who have almost a sixth sense of, of what the next style is gonna be 
they can look at, um, without the help of big data, they can look at cycles that happen in fashion and kind of choose and pick the right colors. It's, pre it's pretty amazing, and it really is a skill. But I think um, it is changing, and it's changing really quickly. And I think um, using that, that gut will always be, um, I would say in industries like that, at least 50% of what you need to be successful. But the people who can start to use data to inform that are going to leapfrog everybody else. And so just one quick example, one of our clients at Hubnami um, is called Stitch Fix. Has anybody heard of Stitch yeah. Fix before? OK, yeah, a lot of women raise their hand. <laughs> so it's a pretty amazing service. When we were pitching them, I had my wife sign up for it. It's essentially, you get a box of clothes uh, each month. Um, they they uh, just starting a men's business, but it's mainly women's. Box comes, uh, you pull out four or five things, a little bit of jewelry. If you like it, you keep it. What you don't like, you send back. Pretty simple concept. Uh, Trunk Club is sort of the equivalent for men. Uh, and the head of, um, the head of their uh, the business, or not the CEO, but one of their key CTOs, is uh, from Netflix. And so he's taken that knowledge of, from Netflix of predicting what people want for movies and applied it to clothes. And so they're not massive now, but I think they're a couple hundred million dollars in revenue after three years. So it's obviously something's working. My wife keeps buying them, so it's <laughs> obviously working. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think it's coming to every industry, even if it was a very you know, sort of art-centric business, that you have, to, you have to be able to take those nuggets. And I think the, the key lesson for me, that one of the, the failure story I was going to tell you is um, when I was in North Face, after this great success with CRM, I tried to, I thought, well, let's do some uh, predictive or uh, regression analysis on our kind of weekly media buys, and let's optimize those, right? So I pulled in a group that we had done some regression analysis type stuff with, and I put them in the room with our media buyers. And media buyers, uh, if anybody's dealt with uh, marketing agencies, it's a pretty old, it's a business that's been doing it the same way for a very long time. Smart people, and actually kind of numbers driven people, but I brought in the group who was doing the optimization, and it was like they were speaking a completely different language than the media buyers, who also kind of look at themselves as artists. I'm going to pick the right channels. I know the right magazines, blah, blah, blah. And it just didn't work. Like, it imploded, because they couldn't get a common language on how to use that data. And so I think what I learned is you got you to take it in little small bites, right? And you got to go slow, and you got to really simplify it, and not put two people together who are speaking completely different languages. So Dean Stevens mentioned that at Davis there's a, a new master's degree um, in, um, in business analytics, and that this is clearly an emergent practice. And I was reading some, some data in an IBM deck, they're one of our clients, and, uh, about how 90% um, of the world's data has been generated in the last two years. And you think about that kind of volume, and you think about trying to prepare people to make smart decisions, ask the right questions in order to deal with that. Um, it's, it's pretty astounding. We definitely need new ways to make sense of all of this and to be able to make decisions quickly and move a business, especially a public business, um, appropriately in response to that. And Ashwin, I was going to ask you, what, what, um, what, makes, what do you think makes Davis as a school or the GSM particularly well positioned to take advantage of this and to train the future leaders uh, in this space? What are you focusing on? Besides asking the right question, which I love that. <laughs> um, so at Davis, we m almost all the faculty are data-driven in their research, right? So all the all the research we have done, for example, I'm sure all of you have been taught by 
Prasad and Brad and uh, Dave Woodruff and, 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 and so on. And all of them in their research, they use data to make decisions, to drive the decision making, right? And so um, in our research, in the history of what we have done, we've always been comfortable handling data and asking questions because that research needs to lead to new insights, right? That you didn't already have with, the, uh, with what, what has been done till now. And so in that sense, uh, I would say uh, we have always been data-driven in our approach in, to handling marketing problems. But at the same time, we don't ignore the, the art part, right? Because you have to come up with new insights. And to do that, you need to ask better questions. Um, and so in that sense, I think as a school, uh, we have a lot of strengths. In fact, a lot of the faculty have developed new models of analysis. So it's not just that we use existing models to come up with insights, but a lot of these models that have been developed were developed by the faculty themselves. Um, apart from that, we also have extremely strong engineering and statistics departments. Right? And so we, have, we are working with them to try and also include uh, them in the process so that you know, the students not only understand the art part and you know, just the marketing models, but also get a broader exposure to computer science, because that is what essentially will drive the, uh, the growth of uh, data analytics. Right? And so I think it's, it's this combination of uh, the business school, which will be the primary driver, in, co in alliance with computer science, statistics. We also uh, have some faculty in communications. I mean, you were talking about the amount of data generated. Uh, one of the faculty in communications was back in 2008, I think. Uh, so I know him. Uh, he uh, published a paper that quantified all the data till that time. Uh, and so he has a model for how to do that. And that was actually a pretty uh, path-breaking paper. And, you can see, if you use his model, one of the, his model is one of the models that are used to try and estimate how much data is generated uh, over time. Um, so we have a lot of uh, professors who specialize in exactly, uh, exactly this. And so that's why I think we have an advantage. Abby, you're um, helping lead communications and marketing at a, at a company that's, um, that's part of a family of companies that, that, while they may not be the largest, but they're still quite large on, on the scale of companies in the world. And I'm, I'm curious for you, um, at Virgin America, what types of data are most important to you as a marketer and, and communicator to, to be watching? Which ones are you particularly interested in and why? Sure. Um, well, as an airline, we actually, like even though the airline industry is pretty old school, it is pretty data driven because we are essentially yield managing every seat. Mm -hmm. um, so once the, the, the door closes on the plane, that's lost revenue. So um, there's a lot of focus on that internally. I think for kind of the marketing and product teams, though, it's really all about customer feedback. And um, uh, really, that's kind of our big differentiator in the space. We're really focused on creating, you know, the, the idea of the brand in the US was to really actually create an experience that people might like instead of just tolerate um, when they're flying. So it's really important for us to get that direct feedback from travelers. And so, um, you know, all of the, the usual methods, but kind of going back to what I said earlier, we also do a lot of um, more qualitative work. We have kind of a focus group of our top flyers who we kind of have like a rotating focus group of these like amazing um, women and men who like fly constantly or super loyal to Virgin who we kind of test things out with, get their um, input first and they've been um, quite helpful for us. So um, I think it is mainly, you know, on, on the customer side, but it's that mix of kind of, um, you know, quantitative and, and qualitative. Yeah. Feedback. 
Yeah, so it's data that, in theory, it's always existed. It's just now we actually have access to it much more quickly. You can look at patterns across it rather than waiting for response you know, lag times and stuff to, to um, yeah. collect it. And That's we're also like cognizant of not over-surveying people, too, because I think a lot of our competitors now that are trying to kind of turn around their customer service, and like every time you go on a flight, you get that survey from them, which is super annoying, you know, for <laughs> for travelers. So we're you know try and try and balance that yeah, as that well. Um, Aaron, I was curious for you as an entrepreneur, and because you get to to see inside a lot of different companies that you're serving. Um, what's becoming possible for a smaller company to do when it comes to data analytics? So we, we all think of these, you picture these massive servers somewhere that these big companies have access to and all this data pouring through them. And then you think about the little, the little guy or the person who has a, little, you know, a small chain of stores or something. I'm curious what you're seeing, what's possible? It's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, I think the biggest advantage small companies have versus the big companies is um, the big companies get locked into these massive systems that they've made giant decisions around, and they once they're in, whether that's a CRM system or an analytics package, especially like a VF corporation that owns North Face, Vans, Timberland, I mean, all the thought and the negotiating and then, you know, to get those systems in place, uh, you're locked in. And so if something doesn't work to try and get out, it's like unraveling this giant labyrinth of uh, things. So that CRM program I talked about took oh my god, I don't know, four years to do at the North Face, um, a lot of it because of the bureaucratic hurdles. If you're a small company, you could go create a CRM system. If you're on Salesforce and you buy some add-ons, you're good to go with the analytics in, uh, I don't know, you know, two months. And so I think you can just move a lot more quickly. And so th with things being put on the cloud, that you can test, see if it works. If it doesn't, no thanks. I'll go over here. It's just a much more nimble, nimble situation. Yeah. What kind of advice would you give to an entrepreneur who's maybe coming out of the GSM and wants to, and has an idea and wants to go set up a business? Do you um, not that you give this kind of advice every day, but I'm just curious from where you sit. Um, what types of things would you suggest that they get into to try to pay for, attention to what's going on in their market for their own business? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean. Uh, is it CRMs to start, do you think? Or? Well, CRMs super important. I think, you know, just if you're, if you're, what I would suggest is test your idea. You always hear fail, fail fast, take the risk, fail fast, learn from that. It's, it's just absolutely true. And there's so many ways to do that, whether you can, you know, instead of creating a big web page, go do a LinkedIn profile. Instead of doing a massive campaign, go try something on Instagram and see if people react. And just do these small little tests that, the technology is really enabling that test and learn mentality so much more. So um, to date, until big data became a thing, um, <laughs> we often thought about using data as a way to react more smartly to inputs coming in from customers or whatever it might be, whoever you might be, um, whoever, whatever stakeholder might be important to you as in your business. Um, and what it's making possible now is that we can move from a, a reactive state and be quicker reactors and maybe smarter reactors to a predictive one. You can actually look at patterns and think of, and imagine and be able to know what's going to happen uh, out in front of us. And um, I'm curious, Abby, tell us about a couple things that Virgin would love to be able to be, or maybe is, predicting or wants to move in that direction maybe um, using insights from big data sets. 
Sure. Um, you know, I think uh, probably goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, how people are going to book travel in the future, mm. which is a big generic open question. But it's like you've seen so much disruption in the industry um, and with Google Flight Search and other platforms like that, I think, you know, what does that landscape look like mm -hmm. in like, you know, three to five years? Because yeah. it probably will be completely uh, different. So I think that's that's a big one. Yes. And Erin, how about you with some of your clients? Can you tell us any stories without violating any? Um. <laughs> um, what our clients are trying to do, so I, as, a, as a head of global marketing, I used to get three questions from uh, my CEO, and it was, uh, how big is our social media audience versus our competition? A pretty simple question, but you'd often take, you know, I'd go to ask my team, and they said, well, give us four days, and we'll come back with the answer, because just pull all the data is really tough to do. The second one was always, um, how engaged is that audience? Because um, you can have a big audience, but if nobody's engaging, it's, uh, you know, it's not worth that much. And the third one, the most important that people really want to know is I'm putting all this money into social media, telling stories, building content. What is working? And you know, what, why sh what should we be posting and why? And I get asked that question a lot. And a lot of times, the answer wasn't that smart, you know, from my team or myself. It was, we think we should be doing more of this, or we think we should be doing more of that. So we've tried to build a system that lets you look at your content, your competitors' content, and see what the patterns are of success and engagement. And, and I think that's really, even big, big companies, and we work with Adidas and North Face and some other big apparel brands, and they, there's, these are small teams. I mean, there's, you know, you'll, you'll have somebody in their 20s with a team of one to three people for a multi-billion dollar company trying to understand all this, post, create the content, and it's just, it's just a very, uh, that social media space is so wide open right now and so, so small and dynamic that they're just wanting to understand, yes, most CEOs, how is your social media team doing? And they're like, I don't know, it's a black hole. I, I, don't, I don't use any of that stuff, but I think they're doing the right thing. You know? And so we're just trying to create a system that lets you compare apples to apples, country to country. Um, you know, how are you doing on some bit, very basic stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ashwin, are you tell, uh, is there, since I don't understand the science that well, is there predictive science that goes into looking at data sets? Or are you analyzing after the fact? I'm kind of curious how that works. Um, so. If I can step back a bit, so the data analytics world basically has three different components, right? So there's descriptive, which is basically saying, okay, what is the data saying, right? Um, do I, is there something that I can understand? Can I segment my population and so on? Then there's the predictive part, which you're talking about. And so you, you, there are multiple ways to do that, right? So with an existing data set, you can segment that data set into you know, one that you estimate your model on and the other one on which you predict and see how well you perform, right? And so, yes, you still have to use historical data, but you can, uh, you can still test how good your model is at predicting uh, things for the same data set. And then as time goes by, you can see how well your predictions perform. Uh, where I see this going, uh, because uh, to some extent, this is reflecting what is happening in academia, right? Uh, so new models are coming up and then they get applied in industry. Uh, there is a movement towards prescriptive analytics where uh, you say, this is where I want to be. Now, knowing what I know today, how do I get there? Right? And so what we're really doing is we're trying to craft the future 
by playing around with the controls that we have, which is, you know, do I spend more in this media? Do I get more likes? Should I get something more for this, for Instagram? What drives sales, uh, depending on what, what your outcome is, whether it's sales or just brand mentions or whatever, right? And so now it's getting to a stage where you can set targets and you can see what you can do today to reach that target. So, uh, so that's something that's, that's also happening. Well, yeah, just to add on to that, a lot of our clients are um, using things like regression analysis to, to um, used to be sort of an either or, used to go to YouTube and they'd say, um, TV's going to be dead in five years. You should just be buying us. And the reality is, that's not what happened. You know, now it's, a, it's sort of Twitter and a lot of social media is an add-on to the entertainment that people are doing. And so, but they're using regression to understand the relationships between some of the traditional media and the social media to see what they should, uh, what, what combination they should use. Um, so that's always a big question. Um, and then the ROI question is always the big one in social media. Like what, I'm spending all this money, what am I getting in sales out of R, from an ROI standpoint? Which there's some tools out there and we're working on some, but it's, uh, that's the big, big one to crack. Yeah, I imagine that measuring brand loyalty is one of those um, real arts and softer spaces, or it feels that way, where you, people would want to be able to attach data analytics to be able to say that it actually moved the needle Well, there. the cool thing, Ashwin and I were talking about what he's working on, and it, a lot of people say um, in marketing, it's, it's still 80% emotion, right? People eventually are emotionally attached to a great brand or to a product, and so he's measuring uh, how people uh, talk about certain things over periods of time, which is an incredibly important set of data. If you think of holiday seasons or travel seasons or, mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's still the, they're still emotionally attached to those terms or those times of, of year, but you're using data to understand how could you give the context at the right time or use context to message people at the right time with the right thing. So it's still emotion, but there's data now involved in it. Very interesting. Well, it, kind of along those lines, um, you know, when we think of data, we think of these kind of almost binary um, types of images that come to your head. So numbers, things that have kind of hard edges. And what's happening more and more in the big data world is that there are systems now that can look at data that's a lot more, requires a lot more interpretation, a lot more textured. Um, some of you have heard about Watson from IBM, things like cognitive computing, where uh, a machine, uh, you know, a system like Watson can look at 800 million pages in three seconds of data, and it can, and that data might not be numbers at all. It might be people's tweet streams, and it interprets emotion based on that, and can do things like I heard this fascinating example of, imagine if you had a system that could look at the tweets of millions of young men from age 16 to 22, and then be able to predict which of those end up being diagnosed as schizophrenic. And you can look at patterns in language, the types of things they talk about, um, how they construct sentences, and be able to predict that. And imagine what we could do by looking backwards um, at these data sets and be able to you know, come up with, with um, deductions based on that and what that could do to science. Uh, it's just fascinating. It's a fascinating space. And um, I'm kind of curious, um, and Ashwin, I don't even know if, you, if you're in this space or you think about it, but I'm curious what most excites you about the analytics that are increasingly approximating cognition, or if you're, still on, if you're still very suspicious of them. I'm kind of just curious in the academic world how you guys see all of that. Um, 
So just starting off from the unstructured data part, right? So the, the project that Adam was talking about was really, uh, we have collected a stream of tweets. And now we're trying to analyze sentiment and what people are talking about. So identify topics from the tweet rather than us saying that this is the topic and let's put tweets in that topic, right? Uh, and so it's, it's really context driven of the, from the tweet itself. Um, now that's just text, but image analysis is now the next thing, right? So you were talking about Stitch Fix. And um, Stitch Fix is asking people, uh, and you, you might know this. I, I, I know about Stitch Fix because my wife also was looking at it. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if she's subscribed yet. Um, she will. She will. Stitch Fix should have sponsored our They should, yeah. Just down the street, so uh, then, so I started looking at how they how their algorithm works, right? So how do they send a box to you? Uh, and you you might know more about this than I do, but just from their website, I mean, they ask people to put their uh, you know the clothes that they have already on Pinterest. They ask people to put things that they like, the types of clothes that they like on Pinterest. And then uh, you can write algorithms now that take those uh, photographs, right? Given that you have access to it. They take those photographs and then analyze. Okay, so what kind of, what's the color stream that you like? What's the uh, type of uh, dress that you like, or the type of shirt that you like? Do you like prints on your clothes, and so on? Uh, they can also then predict what's the next best color to send you, given the type of you know type of clothes that you already have. And so, the algorithm is still under development, as far as I could tell. I mean, you know more, uh, but it is. It is really the next frontier. Uh, and you know, speaking of Watson, uh, I was playing around with Watson some time back. Um, and they use multiple uh, techniques. So there's machine learning, which is a standard. Then they use rules-based uh, artificial intelligence, which is you, know, you have certain rules. If it meets our criteria, you, you take it forward. It's a method of filtering out, uh, or, uh, filtering out data. Uh, but using all that, what they're doing is they're approximating. Remember I said the idea is to ask the right questions? They're approximating your role of asking questions. So if you actually go to Watson and you know, play around with it, you'll see that Watson can write questions from the data. All you have to do is load a data set, and then watch, Watson picks out 10 questions that, they, that it thinks are the best questions to ask. Now, these might not necessarily be the best questions, but it is something that, that the cognitive uh, computing aspect is playing, uh, the, the role that cognitive computing is playing here. The fun thing about Stitch Fix is they, um, they have the algorithms, <laughs> but they still have humans. Uh, so people who curate at the end, they, they put the final mix together based on some questions people have answered. And, and my wife has said, too, she, it got a little stale, but then they, they, they will ask you, are you going on a trip somewhere? And we were going to the mountains. And so we, she said, I'm going to the mountains on this date. And the box got a lot better. So they have these, you know, they have these uh, kind of ways to curate with the data that seem to be the most effective. Yeah. Wow. Are you, are, I didn't ask either of you this, but um, in the clients that you work with, or Abby, with your, your own company, are you finding, um, as you step into that world, or you see others doing it, how are customers responding to it? Are you getting any of the creepy factor? You know, people being like, oh, this thing knows a little too much? Or, or are you noticing, um, or do you know if customers are picturing what's happening now? And so the magic, there might be magic to it, but there's a little bit of like, oh, I can tell that something is analyzing yeah. me. I think they know, like we're definitely, and like on social, we see that quite a bit. Mm. Um, 
where uh, people are like, whoa, like they'll, you know, tweet something like, my, my, where's my power outlet on the plane? And someone will tweet back and then it's like, oh my God, why are you guys following us? And it's like, well, you, you named us in your tweet. But um, so I think they're very uh, aware of it. Um, and obviously that has changed, like the dynamic has changed quite a bit in yeah. the last couple of years because, you know, and with travel, um, a lot of it related to like, you know, where you're going and like private information and your accounts mm -hmm. and, um, you know, financial information. There's like a sensitivity to it for sure. sure. Yeah. Whole new social contract that has to be managed. Yeah. I, I work with a, another client that's a connected car technology. Mm -hmm. So you can basically run a health report on your car. It'll text you if there's something wrong. Um, and the first question is always, what can it tell, you know? Can this tell where I get where I go? You know, which is an obvious question for people. But um, there does seem to be a generation, generational line on it where, um, you know, people who are older like me, uh, we say, oh my God, privacy. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want you to know that about me. Um, but then when you get into people in their 20s, it's like, if you're giving me something valuable, I'll probably tell you. And I think the expectations, though, of service are going way up because those tools that work, whether it's Uber or Lyft or, you know, they really work. And so for the, for the technologies that aren't great, it's sort of raising the bar and you, and you have to have a good user experience. You have to, if you're going to use data, you've got to use it well. And um, people will call you out on it if you don't. Um, so let's talk a little bit about being a leader in communications and marketing. And given that this is the world we now live in, and how is it, sh how is it shaping and changing what it means to show up every day and lead this effort? Um, and um, one thing I was paying attention to a little bit is that there are a lot more conferences these days where CMOs and CIOs are asked to show up together, and that there's now a, a relationship between marketing and information technology inside organizations, probably of all sizes at some level. Maybe the titles aren't exactly that. And um, Abby, I'm, I'm curious for you, from an organizational perspective, how have marketing and technology had to have, how have they had to come together in different ways, and what's that been like? It's been interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, we've had a lot of that, and certainly like around you know big product developments and, and launches, our teams work super closely. Um, you know, I think actually from um, kind of to the broader question from from the marketing side. There's a lot of advantages to having um, data, obviously, for all the reasons we talked about, but also just kind of justifying what you're doing. Because um, you know, back in the day, it was like, what is this billboard doing for me um, from, from your CEO? And you have kind of a better case um, to make, but at the same time, it's flipped so much now that you know, as a brand really known for like our emotional connection to travelers and our guest experience, it's almost flipped so much the other way that it's kind of harder to defend the stuff that's like really kind of a lark and quirky and things that might you know connect with customers in a way that people might not be um, thinking about. So it's kind of a, a, a balance, um, I'd say. Um, but in terms of you know when we get into sort of product development and pieces like that, to the, the first the original question is we do work um, pretty closely. Um, with with IT, um, I think an example um, of that sort of balance, which is a great example um, and funny one um, that we had, is you know when we sort of 
first started, it was right when social media was taking off. I know no one can remember what that was like um, back in 2007. But we would do a lot of content, um, you know, consistent with the Virgin brand, where it's very irreverent and different. And um, you know, we knew people love traveling with their pets. That's like, you know, we're based in California. It's like a huge demographic for us. And um, we saw this dog online, Boo, the world's cutest dog. I'm sure you've heard of him um, <laughs> many, many years ago. Um, and we were like, this is great. He can be our travel ambassador. And we just had, you know, like our one social media guy and small team saying, like, let's just, you know, do this. Um, and, um, you know, created like a little bit of content around him. And, um, you know, one thing our CEO just constantly made fun of us. Like, this is like real, G you know, it's like, it takes a lot of smarts to know that you put a dog on Facebook and everyone loves it. Um, but um, the one day um, I remember that we had Boo basically posted a fair sale for us and he crashed our old website in one day because he has 17 million likes at that point you know when we first got him in he was not that big and then after that um, our CEO was like okay I'm making no more jokes about the dog <laughs> ever again <laughs> so I think um, that's kind of the balance is like you know probably it would be a lot harder to do something like that nowadays um, you know it, to take sort of a risk and like build kind of like content around something we'd probably we'd, I'm sure we'd still do it but the focus is so much on ROI and what you're getting and you know we have a lot bigger budgets than we used to so there's this kind of constant tension between like organic content and fun things that connect with travelers versus show me the money yeah. like show me what Absolutely. the return is and social is hard to yeah. show returns it, yeah it is very hard yeah I, um, I, I think it's really a fun time in that relationship with uh, uh, CIOs and CMOs, it's just really because um, when I when I started at the North Face in 2008, um, the relationship was very much uh, what do you need, you know, what's the type of st equipment you need, software, blah blah blah, and it was sort of like check the box at budget time, and then you go away. And by the time I left, um, just a year ago, it was uh, we'd be coming to each other with ideas, and it was more like you know, could we do this? Mm. And uh, it became a, a much, it was just a more fun relationship, you know, yeah. than, than just sort of transactional. Right. And uh, so I think that's just going to really continue. But all the stereotypical, you know, language barriers and things <laughs> totally exist. You know, right brain, left brain, and, yeah. you know. Uh, but it, it it's, makes it interesting and fun. Say, so what advice would you give? There are some students here who may have aspirations to go be communications marketers, CEOs, um, and they want to take great brands forward into the world and do great things with them. What advice and, and uh, what capability would you tell them that they need to de develop now compared to maybe when you started um, to be great leaders in marketing? What, what is it that they need to be great at? And what advice would you give them? So any of you, Ashwin, you, you, you want to start? Sure, you start. Okay. Um, I'd say the number one the thing I think is to not be afraid to take risks, which is a huge cliche, but like, especially in marketing, the way the world works now, it's like it used to be so controlled and you kind of could develop these perfect campaigns and bought your eyeballs for those campaigns and everything is not, you guys well know, not like that anymore. You're competing for um, audience constantly. And so taking risks and experimenting is super important. And um, you know how you pull data in to kind of shape that and do it in a smart way is is also super important. Um, but I think you know sometimes you have to 
just take a flyer <laughs> on stuff because um, you know uh, it's it's uh, it's the only way you learn and you know there's um, uh, I think not a lot of upside sometimes to selling risk internally um, you know I remember when we did our safety video all set to music and dance that was another one where the company was like no, <laughs> that's like a terrible idea. People are going to be so annoyed. Um, and, um, you know, now it's 11 million views. It's like one of the most viewed um, airline videos of all time. Um, but I think sort of trusting your gut a little bit and not being afraid to experiment and fail. I mean, we had a lot of failures too, um, but you just kind of have to um, get up and do it again because honestly, you're going to do so many campaigns now. It's like, I can't even imagine if you're going into it and it's, you're going to be doing like hundreds um, yeah. over the course of your career. Um, so kind of getting over that ability to, to not worry about failure and, and you know, it's, it's easier to not take risk, but then it's kind of like, where's the fun in that as a marketer, I guess. Well, it feels like the metabolism of the practice, it has gotten sped up so much yeah. that in some ways you have a more forgiving market, you know, People if you do mess something. It. Exactly. Like yeah. Right yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the attention span is yep. like that. So. Uh, Aaron, how about you? What advice would you yeah, give? Yeah, I totally agree, totally agree with those and maybe building on that. Well, one, trust people younger than you <laughs> uh, because they're, they're really tapped in way more than you could ever be. And use that risk to sort of inspire them and give them that freedom. And that's, what, that's when it does get fun, as long as, long as nobody gets fired. But, um, <laughs> you, uh, but that, I mean, that, that's part of it. And the other thing I would say is um, uh, in the data side, figure out how to make those digestible chunks of insights or you know, actions that we could take based on it versus just the data. And it's really hard to do, especially if you have sort of a leaning towards you like the data, you like to go deep on it, you gotta remember that most people in the room uh, ingest that data in different ways. So have a picture version of it and then have the number version of it and try out different ways to take small, small bits of it and turn them into insights as opposed to laying it all out there because that usually doesn't work. Yeah, the storytelling part of it. There's the storytelling, yeah. 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 So building on, on, on the uh, two-piece advice here, I'd say uh, the other thing to keep in mind, especially if you're a consumer-facing brand, is that the brand story is no longer just your, right? Your consumer is going to contribute to that story, right? And sometimes that contribution can be negative and sometimes it can be positive, right? And so the, the idea is to try and understand how you can leverage these customer conversations towards creating your, uh, your brand story, right? Because you no longer own it. It is a shared experience now. It can, I don't know if you've heard of uh, McDonald's, um, this was probably three, four years ago, where they uh, wanted uh, consumers to talk about their experiences at, uh, you know the story? Yeah, <laughs> in their store. Uh, and um, they didn't really get many good tweets. <laughs> uh, there were all sorts of things about, uh, so I remember one in particular about how someone was saying that uh, they saw that Peter and McDonald's got into a fight on social media and they were surprised because they didn't know uh, there was meat in McDonald's uh, <laughs> uh, products, right? So, but, no, but now you're really having people talk about your brand using hashtags that you created so that you, know, you can get consumer stories. So I, I think, the, the thing to understand is going in the future, especially if you're a consumer-facing brand, is that the story is going to be a shared experience. Right? So 
So you, and you have to be comfortable with that, this, this lack of control that you get through social media. That's great. Those are all great insights. Thank you, everybody, and thanks to this group for teaching us Thank so much you. tonight. Thanks so much. I do want to, um, to just thank the, the panel and the excellent moderator and all of you for being here. It was a great, uh, great evening and highlight of, of all that UC Davis can be and what our alumni can do. And so thanks to everyone. We have some small UC Davis swag gifts for our panelists. Um, and you know, thank you all for coming. And I hope we see you in Davis and, and around Northern California soon. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.